Hello everyone, welcome back to this latest episode in the Top Sales Roundtable Series 2018. Today's topic, leadership versus management, pushing, pulling, or inspiring? My name is Jonathan Farrington. I'm the CEO of JF Initiatives. That's the umbrella for Top Sales World, Top Sales Magazine, the Global Sales Directory, and the very soon to be launched, the salesfuturists.com. And there's a mouthful for you. We've got a superb panel uh, today. Uh, David Matson is a best-selling author, sales and management thought leader, keynote speaker, and leader for sales training seminars around the world. As CEO and president of Sandler Training, Dave oversees the corporate direction and strategy for the company's global operations, including sales, marketing, consulting, alliances, and support. His key areas of focus are leadership, strategy, and client satisfaction. David has guided, guided the firm to its position as the global provider of sales and management training with over 250 operating units in 25 countries. And amazingly, he still finds time to write four books in his spare time. Five Minutes with Vita, The Sandler Rules, Sandler Success Principles, and The Sandler Rules for Sales Leaders. Krista Moore is the founder and CEO of K-Coaching Inc, a sales leadership coaching, consulting and training organization. She's a sought after motivational speaker, author, executive coach and host of the Krista Moore Talk Show. She and her team are passionate about helping others achieve outstanding success in their lives and in their careers. Krista's newly released book, Race to Amazing, is her give back and it's to help sales leaders build an effective management system create an inspiring leadership style, and execute a winning sales strategy. Next, Keith Rosen is a globally recognized authority on sales and leadership and CEO of Profit Builders, named one of the best sales training and coaching companies worldwide. Keith has written several bestsellers, including Sales Leadership, Own Your Day, and the globally acclaimed Coaching Salespeople into Sales Champions, which was winner of five international best book awards and the number one best-selling sales management book on Amazon since 2010. We should also mention that um, he's been named by Inc. and Fast Company, one of the five most influential executive coaches. Last and very certainly not least, Michelle Vazana is the CEO and founding partner at Vantage Point Performance, a leading global sales management training and development firm. She's co-author of Cracking the Sales Management Code, The Secrets of Measuring and Managing Sales Performance. Michelle is also author of Crushing Quota, Proven Sales Coaching Tactics for Breakthrough Performance, which in fact only published last week. Michelle is a prolific researcher and sought after speaker on the topic of sales management and leadership, having conducted the most extensive research to date on the topic of sales coaching practices. She has more than 32 years of successful sales and management experience. Well, I managed to stumble through that. Welcome everybody. Uh, delighted to have you on board. Um, I think this is going to be a very vibrant discussion and debate. What I'd like to throw into the arena to begin with is um, something that I know that um, Dave Matson has been on a panel uh, and we've discussed previously, but not in this context. Uh, we believe, I certainly believe, that in 2018, less than 50% of frontline sales professionals are not going to do their number. Uh, this uh, decrease uh, is alarming 
Uh, it's only three years ago, it was 64%. So we've lost that 14%. It might even be 15, 16% in, in three years. Um, so sales costs are spiraling upwards. Sales achievement levels are going the other way. How much responsibility should sales managers and sales leaders be taking for this uh, alarming demise? David, can we begin with you? Sure. I mean, ultimately, I think the responsibility is on the individual because if we take the premise that salespeople are made, not born, then the individual just can't hold up their hand and say, hey, woe is me, I wasn't born with the right DNA. You know, we can continually get better. Having said that, then it's the manager's responsibility to make sure that I am pointed in the right direction for the types of skills that I need, the types of experiences that I should have, and the results that I should be obtaining. And they too should go under the premise that salespeople are made, not born, and need guardrails as far as what, what am I responsible for doing day in and day out from a behavioral standpoint, and then a constant plan for them to get better. So ultimately, it's going to reside in the management side. But that doesn't mean that I think salespeople can just hold up their hand and say, hey, I told you so. Um, so I think it's both ways. Okay, okay, good. Michelle? So it's, interesting. it's an interesting point, uh, Jonathan. You and I have actually chatted about this at length. Um, we found some really interesting things uh, in our research. And although managers aren't responsible for a salesperson's performance, I don't think anyone on this panel would argue that they are the most influential at improving sales performance. Right, so they're the key lever. And there are some very specific things that sales managers do that get in their way. And they're not they're surprising things. So I think that they are hugely influential. Um, and the top performing managers actually get 30% more of their people to quota through very specific practices. So they've had an outsized impact on the performance of their teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Chris, do you want to come in? Um, this is a great discussion. Uh, I'm sitting here thinking about it in, in two different ways. And I, I don't want to put all the ownership on the sales leader, but I feel like the sales leader is has at least 90% of the responsibility. And maybe that is being a little, um, a little slighted, but I believe that the big differentiator between companies that are successful and sales being salespeople being successful and meeting their quotas is because of effective sales leadership. So if it is about managing and leading, um, you know, that involves hiring the right people and planning and organizing and directing them and holding them accountable. And then, you know, putting the leadership on top of that is really being able to get the results through others effectively. So I put I put a lot of responsibility. I'd say ninety percent on sales leadership. Yeah, you raise a, an, an excellent point, which I'll come on to. But I just want to bring Keith in on that first question, Keith. So let's put aside the variables right now, just building off some uh, great points that everyone made here. Um, let's work off the assumption that <laughs> the uh, the salesperson in question has the has the baseline skill the baseline EQ and IQ, um, the, they're coachable and they have a desire to learn. Putting those things in context, then I would, I would say that the manager is 100% accountable for the success and failure of their team. 
And I always find it interesting, actually, just had a coaching session with a manager who was really frustrated about his team's performance. And I asked them how often they take the time to do the one-on-one coaching. And of course, that's a that work needs to be defined further and uh, observation. And they said, well, I really haven't spent a lot of time on observation. Actually, last week was the first time I did it in about three months. And I was really, really frustrated about what I saw. And my response to this manager, I sort of took my coaching hat off and put my advising hat on. And I said, you know, you have no right to ever be upset or frustrated or lose patience with your people because it's always your fault. Because if the manager was doing their job, and again, working off the presupposition that it's the right person, it is their responsibility for the onboarding, it is their responsibility to make sure that that person has the acumen and the skills needed to thrive. It is also that manager's responsibility to treat each person like an individual, not treat each single person like a number or or a data point. And when when you compile all those things, Ultimately, it is the manager who is the one who's impacting the success and failure more than anyone else. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, it's not a mystery that, you know, employee engagement keeps sinking. Uh, I just read a, a study from Gallup saying that, um, uh, what is it, 70% of employees are actively disengaged. Well, where does that start? From the top, avalanches roll downhill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Okay, so I'm going to work my way back, and I'm going to begin with you, Keith. And I know that, like all of us, um, everybody on the panel and me are evangelists about sales coaching from sales leaders stroke managers. And and I probably need to emphasize the difference between sales leaders and sales managers. It's my view that I think 80% of people in a sales management leadership role are actually managers. Um, And I'm using Pareto again, and 20% probably less are genuine leaders. But why is it that coaching, which is probably the most single, most critical skill that any sales manager can have, is actually, we discover, the weakest, Keith? Mm. Yeah, actually, uh, just uh, building off some other great data points, I I recently saw another uh, study uh, that was done uh, by McLean and Company, and uh, they found that in 2017, according to stakeholders, coaching and mentorship was one of the five least effective areas of HR out of 31 criteria, and then it dropped to the third least effective in 2018. So... What is the inherent challenge with coaching within organizations? Let's start with the baseline. Ask 30 managers in any organization what the definition of coaching is. You'll hear 30 different definitions. Uh, There is no streamlined process for organizations today to develop a a holistic coaching culture. Uh, And many times it's because they don't know how, which is why in my my last book, I've actually put together an assessment to really help companies self-reflect and see, are we ready for this cultural transformation? Are we ready to truly become a coaching culture? And it starts with number one, what is your definition of coaching? Number two, what is the framework of coaching that you're using universally in every single conversation? Number three, how are you sustaining your growth as a coach And that, of course, bleeds back into peer-to-peer coaching, which is probably one of the things that managers are doing the least of. And yet every single time I encourage managers to tap into the wisdom of their peers, inevitably they're amazed of how much great advice and coaching they're getting to create breakthroughs that they never even thought possible. Yeah, 
I mean, is there not a case to suggest that sales managers are poor coaches because they've never been taught how to coach? Oh, that that's that's the number one factor right there. Yeah. I mean, most companies, I think they're spending less than $10,000 a year every year on employee development. And it's that's for salespeople. It's less than for managers. You know, and, and, and managers influence 75% of the reasons why employees leave organizations. But yet, yeah. you know, talk to 20 companies and ask them, do you have a structured, scheduled uh, program to develop your managers into great coaches? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, years ago, I, and I have a, um, uh, many, like many of us have downloads where, you know, download a free ebook. And over the last, I don't know, 30 years of me coaching and training globally, uh, I think it's been downloaded about 350,000 times, plus or minus. And one of the questions in there that I ask in the download form is, do you have a coaching structure and framework that you follow consistently that continually drives success and performance and builds world-class teams? And a whopping 95% of those people who downloaded my form said no. <laughs> this is a global that epidemic. That doesn't come as a surprise at all. I saw some research. In fact, I think Dave was on a, again. Dave was on a call. Uh, Dave was on the panel when we were discussing this, and um, one of the other panelists um, suggested that six percent, just six percent, globally of sales managers were qualified and experienced enough to do their job. I find that frightening. Absolutely frightening. Krista, when you think about your clients, how strong a coaching culture do you discover when you first go in? Yeah, I, I have to completely agree with what Keith was saying with that number one being the definition of what is coaching. Mm -hmm. And really understanding is coaching, not telling. And what we find is that there's a leadership style that has been created over time within certain cultures and certain organizations. And it's hard to make the shift to actually be listening and asking questions and uncovering needs and, and just having a different approach to leadership. And we call that you know, having a coach approach to leadership, but you've got a lot of the stats there and um, a lot of statistics about how Companies are um, are not successful because of not having a coaching practice, but also employees are leaving because of their manager. Mm. Um, so I think it's prevalent. I think it starts with self-assessment and really understanding that there's learning and development that needs to take place in order to up-level those skills to be an, a more effective coach, which I think is why you know coaching has emerged as a very viable business. People are outsourcing that so that they can be coached themselves, but also learn a coach approach to managing others. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, thinking about people leaving companies because they feel feel poorly managed. I think what we're finding now is as 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 more top talent becomes available, uh, they are actually interviewing the interviewer when they go for a, a job interview and you know clearly what they're looking for uh, i mean they're much more rigorous in in agreeing to join a company now and and you're right you know they're looking to be coached they're looking to be improved it's not just about being rewarded uh, because i think all top performers realize that 
you know, if they're with the right company uh, and they do their numbers and, and they exceed their numbers, then the rewards will come. It's it's yeah. much more than that now these days, isn't it? Michelle, yeah. you you um you do a lot of coaching, uh, coaching the coaches, don't you? I have in the past. I, I don't do that now as much, but I certainly have done plenty of it. Yeah. I mean, do you agree with the points that Keith and Christopher have made? I mean, do you want to add anything to that? So I, I philosophically agree um, that the culture impacts a lot of the behavior. I guess the point that I would make that's a little bit different um, is that in our research, what we found is the number one reason that coaches are not coaching is because of time, uh, not necessarily because they don't know how. Um, because the same behaviors that make a person a successful salesperson are the same exact ones that make them a successful coach, right? Having collaborative dialogue, making stuff the other person's idea, you know, having a good give and take. There's a lot of the same behaviors. Uh, we've even seen situations uh, with a company, a large global company, it was actually GE, where um, they had put their coaches, 125 sales managers, through five separate courses on coaching before we started working with them. And 50% 50, 50 of the salespeople said they weren't receiving any coaching. And these people really knew how to coach. So I think there's a big assumption that if people know how to coach, they'll figure out how and when to coach. And, and we haven't really seen that. Um, and there's a, there's a time study that was conducted by Adam Rapp. Uh, he's a professor in the sales space, a very prolific researcher. And he did a time study. And what he found is that best case, managers have about 32% of their time to manage their team. And that's not 32% of the time to coach, it's 32% of their time to do all of the things required for managing the team, which leaves a just a very small percentage of that time for coaching. And if you take conventional wisdom around coaching, the conventional wisdom would say the best coaching is in the field. You have to observe sellers making sales calls. And in our recent research study, we found that the lowest performing managers spent the most time in the field. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of conventional wisdom out there that research doesn't really back up. And I would just say, you know, be careful about putting so much ownership on the behavior of the manager when the manager is in the middle of a of chaos created by the organization that they reside in. So their their discretion is a is a very small portion of the time that they're allocated, and how they choose to spend that very small amount of time really matters. It matters a lot, and there's certain kinds of coaching based on the kinds of roles they manage that are more high impact than others. And having a framework, as Keith mentioned, to, to make those distinctions and make those decisions about what type of coaching is going to be most high impact, why, is critical. So that's, I think that's about yeah. all I would add. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are frightening numbers. And, and, and yet all of us, and I would have thought most um, forward-thinking, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, thought leaders in the sales space would agree that coaching is absolutely paramount. I mean, what are your experiences, David? Well, I mean, as as I go back and kind of look at the uh, the book, you know, we did a coach's playbook, and, and as you know, we have like 31,000 people going through our system a year, so I'm going to make some generalizations. I think the first is that somebody had said it, most weren't coached themselves, so they don't know any different, right? They're just doing exactly what was done to them, so we're just you know, making, we're just pushing that down to the next generation. I think that's certainly there. And if somebody said, what, 3% of the managers are equipped to do their job, 
I mean, think about that. If they were, if we used an airline pilot as an example, think about 3% of the airline pilots were, you know, capable of doing their job, but yet they're shepherding the whole team, just like sales managers and managers shepherd the revenue streams for our organization. But when there's no time, which I also think is there, most managers feel they don't have the time to do it. And if you put, they don't see instantaneous results sometimes right on top of that, then they're going to spend their time doing other things. And I think the last two points that come to mind are most people that think they do, think they are good coaches. I mean, most people are going to tell you that they coach. And you have to ask yourself, I mean, are they telling or are they coaching? Are they doing reactive coaching on a specific event or are they coaching to gaps? I think most people would say they do reactive coaching. And then even role playing, it's amazing when I do management training and you ask people, how many of you role play with your people? Very few hands go up. So I think there's an awful lot of things going on here that just kind of you know, comes to the surface under this this particular topic, Jonathan, that we talked about. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree entirely with you, David. I'm going to come back to you, but Keith wants to come in on this very point. Keith? Yes, thanks, Jonathan. I, I have a little bit of a conflicting view on this. Um, I uh, feel very strongly, and there are some CEOs out there that also feel very strongly um, in multi-billion dollar corporations that said to me, and I would certainly attest if a manager is not spending 70% of their day coaching, and that includes impromptu situational coaching, it includes observation, it includes um, scheduled one-on-ones, they are simply not doing their job. And where I believe there, if you look at any culture, I mean, let's face it, you know, result driven cultures, which is virtually practically every organization out there, if you have a target on your back, breeds result driven thinking. And if it breeds result driven thinking, it breeds result driven people. So if you take that line of thinking through completion, if I'm a manager and I'm looking at my scorecard and I'm looking at my key performance indicators and I don't see coaching on there. I see, I see hires on there, I see growth, I see retention, I, I see, of course, that, that quota that I need to hit for my people to hit. Well, now I'm putting results over people. Of course, I'm going to feel like I don't have time to coach because the only thing that matters right now is driving the result. And what does that bleed into? Well, wait a second, I don't have time to coach because the assumptions it takes too long, which is the absolute furthest thing from the truth. But if I think it takes too long, um, it's not that they know how to coach. If someone says coaching takes too long, it's because they don't know how to coach. They're doing something else. Because every great manager I know who is truly an exemplary coach would never go back to any other style of being the directive chief problem solver simply because they're realizing they're realizing the benefits. Wait, my my customer retention is increasing. My internal customers, my my staff retention of my best people. Um, we have a healthier culture. Uh, people are happier. Um, we're collaborating more. We're more authentic. We're breaking down uh, departmental silos. Uh, wow. If I'm experiencing this from coaching, then I must be doing something right. Now you raise some valid points. I I think back to my consultancy days, and one of the first things I always did. Uh, was conduct an audit of an entire team and I use various assessments and I'd use my own judgment and um, a lot of that of course was a, was was subjective but there was a lot of objective objective elements in there 
And I, I would suspect that 80% of the sales force that I interviewed, when I asked the question, what's your ambition for the next stage of your career? I, I, they would always say, I, I want to move into management. And I looked them straight in the eye and I'd say, why? And they would say, they'd come out with things like, well, it's a logical next stage for my career development. Um, somebody once said, I get a better car. Uh, they might say, I get more money. And I said, okay, but you do realize that you know, you're, you're, from, you're going from a point where you're relying on your own success and you're self-driven. Uh, your success is gonna be determined by your team. And if any of them fail, you fail. Are you prepared for that? And you could see that you know, it suddenly got them thinking. Um, uh, and I think that's terribly, terribly important. So if we believe that only 6% of um, sales managers in their current role are equipped to, to, um, uh, to, to do that role efficiently, we should really be worrying about the other 94%. And I come back to something I said right at the beginning of this discussion which is if the percentage of frontline sales professionals who are going to hit quota this year is less than 50%, if it continues deteriorating at that rate, it's not going to be many years before we see it going to 40, 30, 20. What can we do thinking about sales managers and sales leaders to arrest this, David? Well, I think the first thing that we can do if we just look at it holistically is to look at our hiring process to make sure that we're bringing on the right types of people. I think that we should do a better job on onboarding. I think that most organizations do a horrific job on onboarding. They throw product knowledge at them and say, hey, good luck to you. And it takes two to three sales cycles for anyone to figure out whether that person should have been on the team. And by that time, they've invested so much time that they rationalize saying, hey, we'll give them some more time when they really should have been probably never hired. And then I think the other things that we've talked about, I think that, you know, I've seen management spend so much money on different things within the organization. But if we all agreed on this call, which we have, that coaching is like one of the most important things, if it's not the most important thing that a sales manager should be doing, then now we move to managers. I think we should be onboarding sales management. You know, onboarding of sales management is a senior leader looks around and says, you were a top producer, and therefore I'd like you to replicate yourself. Good luck to you. And we all know that that's ne not necessarily, those skills aren't transferable. And mm -hmm. I believe sales managers are probably the least trained group of people in any organization. So if we wanna stop the bleeding, then I think we need to strengthen up our management team, our sales management team. And, and there's some things that we can do. There's always nice to have stuff that we would like our people to know and we should train to, but then there's need to know stuff. And if we were just to strip back, what are the two or three things that we absolutely need to do? Coaching is one of the topics on this call. I think we would do ourselves a great service if we would simply teach them how to increase the skill level and the results of the people who work for us. Um, and, and give them the mentoring necessary, which I think does not happen in most organizations. But the list is huge. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, we can fantasize about top gun programs where managers are given the skills before the output's required uh, and they're taught to be efficient and um, yeah, efficient leaders. I think that's sort of absolutely critical, but I think it will remain a fantasy in most industry sectors, sadly. 
Um, Michelle, do you want to come in? Sure, I would love to, Jonathan. Uh, this is a really hot topic as it relates to coaching, which is, is it a training problem? And, you know, I run a training company, so I'm not trying mm -hmm. to, to say, don't come and, have, and train your sales managers. We think that's a fantastic idea. But the issue arises when we think that training is really the, the best solution and really the, the holistic solution, because I have not seen any evidence that it is. And the, the example that I'll give you uh, is, is the words of a sales manager that, that uh, we work with. This has been about five years. He worked for a manufacturing company. He was actually a very high performer. And when we started working with this company, um, there were some reporting issues, there were some comp issues, there were, there were multiple issues that were impacting what was happening in, you know, at the front line. And we had to take all of those issues into consideration. And by the time we trained these sales managers, we had to create alignment between all these other sort of pieces and initiatives that impacted the sales manager's life and their day-to-day their -day work. And I remember being in a, in a, I was actually in the classroom with that sales manager at that time, and he said, oh, my God, he said, I feel like my organization has been giving me lots of ingredients and none of them went together. And I feel like I'm finally getting the recipe. And my point there is training, if it's done sort of in isolation, like lots of managers get coaching training. But if they don't know how to use the dashboards that they're given, if they don't know how to tie that to their appraisal process, if they don't know how to use that along with the sales methodology that they've been trained on, there's. There's so many pieces that have to work in tandem, work together in order to enable an environment for a sales manager to coach. And oftentimes training doesn't take those into consideration. There's just one more ingredient that's thrown in an already overwhelmed sales manager. So I think training is important, but I think the, the environment within which that training takes place, the real environment has to be taken into consideration. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I just want to quickly go back to a point that Dave made, and, and just maybe this will startle you, maybe it won't. But a, a statistic that I saw the other day uh, suggested that when a frontline sales professional is promoted to sales manager, um, simply because they were the best performing salesperson when the vacancy arose, the average tenure for those people is 18 months. Now, I find that quite alarming. Um, what do you think, Krista? Yeah, we've spoken about this in, in the past, Jonathan, and this is something mm. that I'm very close to because I was one of those people. <laughs> I was yeah. successful in sales and thrown into sales management without any training because I was a pretty good salesperson. Um, I remember that company got purchased by a large organization and they had more structure around how they hired and onboarded and and trained their managers and they sent me to management school because they felt that I didn't have the skill set necessary to be an effective sales leader. And I think back on those days and uh, it really brings me to my point that I believe, sure, hiring the right people and onboarding and training, all those things are very fundamental and important. But I would say first and foremost is that self-awareness and um, self-assessing and self-discovery, whether that is because you send somebody to management school, whether they take an assessment and a 360 and hear from their peers, or whether they've got a mirror up in front of them um, and they're working straight on with the coach. But that self-awareness, I think, comes first. And then really being 
objective about what do I need to do better or different to be more effective, to get the results that I'm looking for. And that sales leader, that sales manager has to take the personal accountability to make the changes um, in their style and in their approach so that they can get the results that they're looking for. So I, I really put it down to an individual um, understanding of themselves and really embracing the impact that they have on the business and on others. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Keith, how important do you think it is for new sales managers, well, old sales managers alike, to <clears throat> adopt the mantra, if it's to be, it's up to me, rather than waiting around for the organization to train them? When you, I, <laughs> I'll try to laser this in, in one, 60 seconds or less. So I, the, the bigger the organization, um, uh, as, as managers and leaders move up, they become more d detached from what's going on in the front line. I think we all know that. Uh, in terms of what makes the managers perform. We all know in, in terms of that, most managers in the workplace, right? They were promoted because they were good at what they did and not necessarily good at making their people better. So <laughs> building off that, if they're hitting their numbers, well, why should I change? So, you know, when, when I, when I see these companies say, Keith, and especially the managers, they sit there and they're, they're, they're crying or they're sweating. Keith, I, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know I want to coach. I know I can be a great coach. And I know if I do it right, I can coach in 10 minutes or less. Because if you have the right framework, you can. But you don't understand. Our company is a result-driven, metrics-driven organization trying to turn our culture, our culture is like trying to turn a battleship. And my response is, I agree. And they say, okay, Keith, so what do I do? I said, well, how do you change a culture? How do you transform talent? It's one person at a time. It's one conversation at a time. So when I'm coaching managers, um, it gives them uh, a, an opportunity to breathe a sigh of relief when I say, hey, rather than focusing on trying to change your culture, which could be really overwhelming, what if you created the subculture? And a subculture is something that is, it's a culture that exists within a larger culture. And the subculture I, I reference is that your team. You know, your, your people are in, the people are interacting with their manager every day, you know, whether it's email, it's a message, phone call, you know, joint sales calls, one-on-ones. Um, Therefore, the manager is the culture <clears throat> and they have the power to create the culture they want on their team. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, Keith, let me ask you, do you, do you often encounter, um, sales managers who, who were in fact promoted because they were the best performing salesperson when the vacancy arose. Do you ever discover arrogance amongst them? Um, because they've been, been so successful at selling, they're somewhat reticent uh, about taking on board advice about managing because they think it's going to be easy. Yeah, and and that and of course I've never heard that before ever, Jonathan. That's not, that happens in the in today's world. No, top salespeople are getting promoted into management without any training. Uh, hope my sarcasm is translating. So, <laughs> well, this 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 actually creates the universal conundrum here. So I'm a great salesperson. Now I'm an, I'm going to be put into management and uh, don't know how to manage. I was never trained, so I'm going to default to what I know, and what I know is how to sell. 
So the sheer positioning of this forces the manager not to become a great leader, but to become a great chief problem solver. So all they wind up doing is running around, doling out answers, fixing people's problems, closing deals, saving the day. And then of course they turn around and wonder why they have no time or they wonder why their people aren't accountable or they wonder why they have a team of people that are fully dependent on them. When in fact, the, the paradox is they create the problems they want to avoid. Yeah, yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Okay, I mean, <clears throat> what we said in our publicity um, prior to this recording was, do we know the right time? Do sales managers gen genu genuinely even know the right time, when to push, when to pull, when to lead from the front, when to guide? Um, what do you think, Keith? Do they? No, no. Um, one of the main questions that I hear during any uh, leadership coach coaching program that I deliver um, to really coach the coach and develop leaders into great exemplary coaches um, is uh, no, 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 Keith. I, I know how to coach, um, I, I, but but I'm not sure when. Like, when do I coach? When do I give advice? When do I train? When do I leverage my expertise? When do I give them my opinion? And in the most simplistic terms that I could answer that question is if they had the right coaching framework, the right coaching framework does all of that for the manager. So said a different way is if they're not sure which way to go, it's because they're not following a proven framework, which is allowing them to uncover the developmental opportunity, assess what the facts are, find the gap, and coach to that gap. If you have a really good framework, that happens organically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm gonna put you on the spot now. Several years ago, well, it wasn't several years ago, it was many, many years ago, in fact. Um, I was very fortunate enough to get onto a very intense emotional intelligence course. Um, and, and I think it's one of the best programs that I ever um, I ever managed to get myself on. And I discovered when I got into sales management and VP sales roles and upwards, um, that uh, I didn't just hear what my salespeople were telling me. I didn't just watch what they were doing. I felt it. And I think that that's really what emotional intelligence gives you. I could bump into one of my sales managers, for example, in the car park, and I knew instantly if there was anything wrong. I knew if he was going to have a, or he's going to start the day badly. Uh, maybe something had happened at home. I sensed it, and and it gave me an awful opportunity. It gave me an excellent opportunity to nip it in the bud, drag him into the office, uh, or invite him into the office, and um, try and understand what was happening. Because I genuinely believe that one of the one of the most critical uh, functions the sales management manager has to perform is to keep the team performing at optimum performance levels and that <coughs> excuse me that's not just one of them that's all of them so let me ask you Krista how important do you think emotional intelligence is in sales management yeah I mean I think it's highly important um, I could share lots of stories about working for bosses and leaders that had no emotional intelligence. And I, I think just the attention to it and the awareness of it has 
shifted, um, you know, over the years. You used the term um, emotional intelligence, but you were also, in my mind, I, I'm thinking it's like it's empathy. And when when we're working with leaders, we're asking them to be thinking about their answers and how they're responding based on their head, their heart, and their gut, where often they might just be thinking financially or the money, or they're thinking, they're thinking emotionally too strongly, but you know, put all those three together to be able to kind of even out uh, a response or how you might relate to someone else. Being empathetic is going to enable the sales leader to listen and understand and start to build more of a coaching style. Plus, we know that when that empathy exists and they're really feeling what the other person's feeling, they're able to adjust their behavior and make the changes and know when to pull and know when to push. Michelle, I'm going to ask you about emotional intelligence, and I have to apologise. I've just seen the note. Jax has uh, sent me a note in the message box that you wanted to make a point on one of the previous points. That's all right. <laughs> I'm I'm past that. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let me I'm let so me talk sorry. about. That's okay. Let me. Uh, let, I I really agree with Chris's perspective on this. That it really is a multiple pronged approach. Um, and what I find is that managers tend to gravitate more toward one or the other, and don't really look at the balance. And, you know, I've seen so much of that in managers that over empathize and are all about the relationship and then others that are really all about the numbers and managing the metrics. Um, and you have to look at all of those. And if you don't uh, and if you're not held accountable for looking at all of those, you're going to gravitate toward your true nature and your true nature is going to be more one than, than the three. So I think it's really goes back to a mechanism for self-awareness. Um, that that helps a manager understand how to best communicate with an individual and there's some recent research that uh that we've done with florida state university around hiring that's really fascinating um and the perspective that it's really all in the manager to make all the adjustments um is a is a, it's intuitively appealing but not realistic and we've done some recent research that shows that not only is hiring the right person important based on the profile but you can hire that same person and put them with four different managers and they might succeed with two of those and fail with two of those. So this notion of, you know, matching the type of person you're hiring with the type of manager they're most likely to succeed under is kind of an emerging, um, it's an emerging idea, an emerging practice, and it's something that no one's thought about really. Um, and it, it, it's not just the ownership of the manager making all the adjustments, it's about fit. Not only fit with the role, but fit with the organization culture and fit with the person you're going to be reporting to. So it's kind of a, a new thing that we're exploring and, and getting some interesting insights around. No, that is really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'll be interesting to see what you come up with with um, with Lev. Um, Michelle, just I'm going to revert back to Keith in a moment. He's got something to say, but I want to ask you this. In your experience, um, how common is it for sales leaders at the hiring stage to hire the candidate that they like the most. In other words, they made a subjective decision. I will be able to work with this person rather than choosing the best person for the role who may well challenge that same manager for his job. Yeah, I think I think everyone on this panel would say that's one of the biggest issues in hiring. Um, mm. Even in very large organizations with very sophisticated hiring mechanisms, let's say that, um, you know, let's say that you're working with 
um, a, a Fortune 500 company who has very sophisticated recruiting. They've got assessment tests. You know, they got all kinds of things that they, you know, they do profiles. Let's say you have two candidates that seem equally equipped to do the job. You put those two in front of the sales manager. The sales manager is going to pick the one they like the most. And you know that's just human nature. And and we're all the same, right? We all gravitate toward that in absence of a better way of doing it. So I, I think that. I think that there's a lot of evidence that would suggest that's a huge problem. And you can't ever completely eliminate it. You can just try to reduce it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's vital. Keith, coming back to you. Yeah, I just wanted to touch back some really good points made here um, on the emotional intelligence part. You know, as you know, if you go back 20 years ago, if you say, hey, we should bring mindfulness into the corporate world, you know, people would laugh you right out the door. And, you know, today, it's all about actually bringing love into the workplace. And, you know, people well, love Keith. Come on. You can't bring love into the corporate world. But wait a second. What is what's the difference between that and caring? You know, coaching is caring. If you're truly putting your people first, it's because you care about them. And being, you're not, you're not, you know, being able to develop a team through a spreadsheet. You, who you are is always going to be more important than what you do. And it's that being part of leadership is where I'm referring to. It's the who versus the what. It's the inner game of leadership. And, you know, being a great leader, it's more than just the coaching framework or developing your acumen. It's, it's the inner game. It's the mindset. It's that way of being to expand your thinking. Uh, to 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 create that coaching magic and the results that you never thought possible and that can only happen if you shift your thinking first to be someone who is insatiably curious be someone who's unconditionally supportive be someone who truly wants to put other people first before the results that's when the byproduct is developing an exceptional world-class team yeah, I do agree with you. You know, you I'd just add this. You do talk a lot about love, Keith. I'm convinced that you're giving giving away your secrets. I think you really are an aging hippie, aren't you? Say that again, Jonathan. I didn't hear the last part. I think you. I think you're an aging hippie. <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> okay, Dave. Would you like to come in on this point, and then I'm going to ask all of you as we head towards the witching hour. Uh, because we've got, we're going to have some um, sales leaders, uh, hopefully. We'll certainly have a lot of sales managers. And we'll have, a, also, I think we'll have a lot of ambitious, top performing sales professionals that are looking to move into management. And I'd like all of you, all four of you, to leave, to leave uh, them with three tips for becoming the best possible sales manager they can become. So do you want to come in first of all on that last point, Dave, and, th and then we'll get you on giving some tips. The emotional intelligence side or the fact yeah. that they hire somebody that looks like them? Oh, I think probably emotional intelligence. I think we all agree that there is a huge danger, isn't there? Maybe 80 percent. And there we go with Shoretto again, that uh, people like to hire subjectively. But yeah, on emotional intelligence, Dave. I think most people probably couldn't even describe what emotional intelligence is as they're a manager. And so I think that, you know, the first thing is this is this gray area. I mean, if you think about people that we're managing, they are a victim of what's going on in their head, right? Um, you know, we have a great month, we're on top of the world, we have a bad month, and you know, our our <laughs> where our hands are dragging on the pavement because we're just swooped over so much. And I think most sales managers, if they see somebody, uh, that was one of the examples, you know, are they intuitively 
saying to themselves, hey, there's something wrong, as you did when you were in the field. But I think most sales managers blow right past it. And if they do see that there's something wrong with this person, do they move towards, hey, let's deal with the attitude stuff, the head stuff, the behavior stuff, or do they move towards, hey, I'll help you with your tactics? I think most people gravitate towards the tactics and they lose sight of you can only perform in your role as you see yourself from a self-concept standpoint. And if we can help people get right on the on that side, the I side, then the role side will happen. But I think as we talked about earlier in this conversation, we tend to jump to the other things that we think, quote unquote, have more instantaneous results. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's always this sort of constant drive, isn't there, for instant gratification, getting runs on the board and far too little time just to stand back and assess and develop self-awareness. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think it would be unfair to run you straight into your top three tips today. So I'm going to start with Keith. Keith, three tips to aspiring managers and existing managers and what they can really do as we move into 2019. First and foremost, employees who feel empowered to make decisions, which is all about coaching. And, and again, some people who love statistics are four and a half more engaged than, than those who do not feel empowered and said it different ways when the manager is acting like the chief problem solver and doing their job. So tip number one, managers have to stop over engineering absolutely everything they touch. This coaching does not have to be difficult. Ask more, talk less, be curious, seek to understand. So when you're talking about coaching and staying away from the part, I mean, I just saw um, a, a client send me over um, the, the rules of engagement for territory management. It was 30 pages long and then didn't understand why there was so much uh, confrontation and conflict amongst the sales team. And I told him, I said, that 30 pages is 29 pages too long. You need one page. And, and I bring that down to coaching, you know, in the most simplistic form, you know, leadership, okay, is a mindset. Who you are is more important than what you do. Leadership, the language of leadership is coaching. <laughs> so all managers, to, you know, again, managers' jobs are difficult enough. You know, everyone here on the panel is here because our job is to make their job easier. And if managers can just really break this down and, and realize that, wait a second, I'm just learning a language. I'm just learning the language of coaching. And it's a language that I engage with my people every single day and honoring the ABCs of leadership, which is always be coaching. Okay. Were there three there? I don't know. You want another one? No. Okay. No, if they take as long as the first one. No. <laughs> that, was, that was excellent, Keith. I'm sure that um, everybody will be able to sort of dissect three out of that. Thank you very much. Krista? Yeah, I would say everyone on this panel probably would agree that the first tip that we would provide um, an existing sales leader or a new one would be to get a coach or a mentor, someone within your organization or externally that can help you with your own personal development. If that's not the path that you're going down, um, I'm going to give a couple of other tips then. I would say first uh, and foremost would be to be approachable and to be accessible. So, you know, try walking around the office and be more engaging with the employees. You know, have direct eye contact um, and have, you know, open body language and just really have a pleasant demeanor. I think 
Um, so often we might get stuck behind the computer or with their door closed, but be approachable and accessible. Um, the other point would be to just be mentally present. Um, practice being an active listener and, you know, give the employees the time and the attention that they deserve. Um, so the next time they come into your office and they, um, you know, want to talk with you, you um, ask them to take a seat and turn away from your computer and ignore your phone and genuinely listen. Excellent. Uh, we call that, we call your second point MBWA, management by walking around. It's so important. It's amazing uh, what you see, what you identify, what you notice. Um, and it's quite incredible that all managers don't do that as much as they really ought to. You know, Michelle, I, what could, are you... I, could I add one more thing I just, I just thought of as I was thinking back at where I've seen some of the already effective, you know, high-level leaders, how do they take their game to the next level? And mm -hmm. I would say my tip or advice or thoughts there would be that there's no need to do it alone, that I would get very active involved in some type of um, forum or mastermind group so that you can learn from other like-minded individuals and they can share their experiences and just continue to um, develop yourself, even though you think you got this um, and, and seek help. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like that very much. And I think that's also terribly important. Before I come to you, Michelle, Keith has one more small tip. Yeah, actually building off to, to, to building off to Chris's point, uh, it, it's it, in order to further embed and sustain the coaching culture, the one thing that I see missing so often is the peer to peer coaching. And that is really where it gets managers get the opportunity to not only practice their coaching, but also get really great coaching. And, and that's what sustains the culture. So, you know, I always say managers, listen, we can always talk about the value you received here during this, you know, in this room where it's safe and, you know, we had carved out the day to do peer-to-peer -peer coaching, but you got to schedule this now. And, and if you don't have the appointment, you don't have the commitment. So I would say that's something that I would implore every manager to do and reach out to their peers and get that on their calendar, um, whether they're in their department or not. We can always learn from our peers and think about the message that's sending to the rest of the organization. The final point I want to make is uh, going back to promoting the salesperson uh, into the management position and failing. And I want to make sure everyone hears how to solve this universal conundrum. And it's actually very simple. The evolution of sales training is teaching salespeople how to be great coaches. If you start your sales training and embed the, the coaching methodology in your sales training, when that salesperson is ready for that promotion, they already have the skill of acumen of coaching. So just imagine what that could be possible and the impact that could have within organizations today. So thank you, John. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very, very powerful. Michelle, three tips. So I want to give a little bit of positioning before I give my three tips, because I think that if, if I don't, it could be a little bit confusing for the listeners uh, when you when you actually broadcast this, Jonathan. And what I'm what I'm hearing, I'm hearing great ideas and great content around who managers should be and what managers should do. And my experience suggests there's a lot of really great methodologies and training and, you know, awareness building experiences that help managers get a better sense of who they are, right? Mindfulness is a great thing. Really kind of getting in touch with, you know, being present is a really great thing. 
And those are all things that have been kind of around for the millennia, right? Those are, those are not new ideas. And I think they're fantastic ideas and they matter, but it's not the same thing as helping a manager know what to do, right? Who to be is one thing, what to do is another. And most of our research and our work is really on the latter. You know, how do you help managers make better choices and do the right things to get them on the right track? And if I were to give managers the three tips that, that we have found in our research have been the most, they've been the biggest differentiators between the top 25% of sales managers and the bottom 25%. It's number one, be very deliberate about creating clarity of task for your salespeople. Every salesperson wants to succeed. They just don't always know how. So it's your job as a sales manager to make sure that they have, are very clear on the vital few things that they need to be executing consistently well in order to increase their chances of making quota. So create clarity of task for your salespeople. That's actually the primary motivator for sellers as well. The second thing that I would do is I would suggest that they rigorously formalize their coaching to orient the bulk of it around those activities that are most critical to their sellers. Not just assume that one type of coaching is more important than another, make that decision based on what your people need to be doing well. So create clarity of task for your sellers, create some structure and formality around your coaching and orient it to those things that matter most for your sellers and their quota attainment. And then finally, rigorously and consistently manage performance by looking at leading indicators. You should know as a manager which activities your salespeople should be engaged in. You should know which objectives and KPIs those are gonna move and you know, and in what time frame you should be looking for movement in order to drive quota attainment. So the, the managers that consistently get more of their sellers to quota engage in those three practices in a very consistent way. Excellent, excellent. David, your three tips. I agree with everything that's been said. I think three quick tips for a new sales manager. Number one is to create a cookbook. That's a list of activities and behaviors that you as a sales leader should be doing, whether it's every day, every week, every month, in order for you to be successful. I think most people are reactive and they don't have a game plan. I think that also is true with your people. They should be on a cookbook so they know exactly what to do and then therefore you can coach. That's number one. Number two, I would say pay attention to your people. Know their behavioral styles, know what motivates them. How about know their goals? So you can tie the corporate goals into their personal goals, especially if they're on commission. Telling somebody that they're gonna you know, hit quota is one thing. Telling them they're gonna make 100,000 on commissions another, but how cool would it be if you knew where they were gonna spend that 100,000 and you could tie that back into them so they could pay for a wedding or a college or something else. So that would be number two. And then number three, I think certainly I would become an expert at role play. I think most managers fall very short on that. I think um, people learn by imitation illustration. And so if you can keep showing people, and you don't have to be an expert in everything, but if you could create that role play culture, I think you will be far better off and, and become a lifelong learner. Put your ego in, you know, in the car and become a lifelong uh, learner. And I think you'll, you know, you'll be far better off uh, doing all the things that we've talked about here than if not. Very, very good, Dave. Um, we are running close to time, but I'm going to take the opportunity to give my three pennies worth. And that's a sort of a, a, a very quaint English um, way of suggesting that I'm going to provide three tips. Uh, I think the first one I would say is to all managers, it's important that you become a, a role model, a model of excellence 
don't expect anything from your team that you're not prepared to do, give uh, or put in yourself. Um, get the, that's the way that you earn respect. You can't command respect, you have to earn it. And that's the way to do it, become a, become a role model. I think the second thing I would say is that remember that management is a, is a, is a people business. Um, it's, it's, it's not something you can mechanize. Um, yes, you can learn from manuals how to manage um, and you can constantly improve your skills. But at the end of the day, it is a people business. And I think as Dave suggested, the better you know your people, the better you can manage them. So it's critical. And finally, I would say this, that I think that whilst sales technology has given us the control element, um, we should use it as a crutch. Um, you know, uh, we shouldn't use it as a crutch, sorry. We should use it as an aid. I think that's, you know, I think that's sort of terribly, terribly important. Get in where the boots are flying, get in with your people um, and don't rely on technology. It, it will only take you so far and it could well remove many of your personal characteristics, which will be critical to you becoming successful. Okay, so that's the end. So I have to thank the panel who I think this has been a terrific debate today. So David Matson, Michelle Vazana, Krista Moore, and last but not least, Keith Rosen. Um, thank you, panel. You've been brilliant. I hope you'll come back and join another round table in the 2019 season. And finally, to those listening in, I would say this, look, and you know this anyway, we've witnessed more changes within the sales space uh, in the last three years than we did in the previous 50. The rate of change is only going to accelerate. Um, but I'd add a caveat. Buyers have changed, but sellers haven't necessarily changed. And we're going to have to, uh, particularly as we move into the next two, two years. There is a certain level of uncertainty, but I certainly don't join um, the doom mongerers uh, and suggest that uh, we're going to witness a massacre in the sales space of sales professionals. But it's terribly, terribly important, particularly as, as we hurtle towards 219, that you stand back, you assess what you're doing, why you're doing it, and be prepared to change when necessary. The old rule book has been thrown out of the window. And if we continue as we are at the moment, then it could well be within two years, only 40% of frontline sales professionals are gonna do their number. And that's gonna be tragic. So, you know, be a success, aim to become at least a top 20% player, if not a top 5% player, um, and uh, you will succeed, but at least you'll survive. So this has been Jonathan Farrington. Again, thank you very much. And I hope you're enjoying this 2018 Top Sales Roundtable series. Certainly we are going to continue into 2019. It's been one of the highlights of my year. So with that, goodbye now.